This program is brought to you by SoundsTrue.com. For those seeking genuine transformation, SoundsTrue.com is your trusted partner on the spiritual journey, offering diverse, in-depth, and life-changing wisdom. Many voices, one journey. SoundsTrue.com. You're listening to Insights at the Edge. Today, my guest is Tessa Bielecki. Tessa is former Mother Abbess of the Spiritual Life Institute, a Carmelite community, with hermitages in Colorado, Nova Scotia, and Ireland. Tessa recently created the Desert Foundation, an informal circle of friends who explore the wisdom of the world's deserts, focusing on peace and understanding between the three Abrahamic traditions, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. She's the author of Teresa of Avila, Ecstasy and Common Sense, Holy Daring, and is also the publisher of Forefront, a quarterly magazine of contemporary spirituality. In her release through Sounds True, Wild at Heart, Radical Teachings of the Christian Mystics, a six-session audio learning program, Tessa invites listeners to a loving realization that God is our divine birthright and an intimate experience of the divine that is not just an experience for saints and mystics. In this episode of Insights at the Edge, Tessa and I spoke about the vitality in monastic life and some of the obstacles that prevent this vitality from running through all of our lives. We also talked about what it might mean to balance polarities in our lives and how this is such important work for the Christian mystic. Finally, we talked about courage and the transformative nature that courageous acts can have on our lives. Here's my very heartful and honest conversation with Tessa Bielecki. Tessa, you were part of a Carmelite monastic order for 40 years. And to begin with, I'm curious to know why earlier in your life you decided to join a monastic order, what was happening in your life. My second question, why did you leave a few years ago? So let's begin with that. Well, I think I would have to be uh, very honest with you and say um, that initially I really was a reluctant monk in When I joined the community that I was in, which was called the Spiritual Life Institute, we actually weren't even monastic at that time. It was this wild adventure of uh, living out in the desert of Arizona, and I had no intention of living a monastic life. What attracted me was the vitality of the life that was being lived. That was what was intriguing to me, as well as the desert, which has always had a fascination for me, even though I come from very green New England and grew up there for the first 21 years of my life. There was something about the arid desert that really appealed to me. So I didn't join a monastery per se. I joined a community that I thought was... um, very exciting, very new. Uh, It was right after Vatican II in the Roman Catholic Church, and in a sense, 
it was, the life was very similar to the whole commune movement of the 60s that was going on, um, well, in lots of places, but particularly in the southwestern part of the U.S. So it was sort of a, a, a Catholic, Christian, uh, a little more disciplined um, community life, and that was what, what attracted me. Uh and I loved it for all those years, although it wasn't easy. And that at a certain point in the, about three years after I had joined, we started to take on these monastic forms, which I actually found very congenial. Um, uh, and then at a certain point, they were no longer congenial to me, let me say. It's very difficult to talk about why I left uh, we ran into a very serious crisis that's, um, it's really not possible for me to talk too openly about it just yet. At some point in the future, I look forward to writing much more openly about it, but that's not possible at this time. But we we hit such a huge um, bump in the road that um Eleven of us from the community left around the same time and went in various directions and have done uh, various things. Only one of those eleven uh, ended up continuing with monastic life. All the rest of us um, opted for living more in the world out of the profound lessons that we had learned from monastic life. I, I don't mean to be vague, but um, it's a little bit tricky for me to talk about it. That's fine. I feel totally respectful of that. Thanks for your candor. I appreciate that. Now, you talk about how anyone actually could be what you call a mystic, that actually the life of the mystic is available to anybody, that it's not only for people who are called to join a community or take on monastic vows, but that it's as simple and natural as breathing. That's the comparison you make. So talk a little bit about that. Yes. You know, this has really been one of the um, deepest convictions of my life and is really the basis of uh, whatever work and teaching I do um, in the Christian mystical realm. And what I was taught and believed with every fiber of my being is that uh, the mystic is not a special kind of person, but everyone is or ought to be a special kind of mystic. And this was, from the Christian perspective, this has been controversial down through the centuries, and there used to be a, more, a much more um, aristocratic attitude towards it, that you had to be living a monastic life, or you um, you had to live in a very rarefied way. And the whole focus, first of all, of my years in the community life I lived, and then subsequently has been on um, proving, actually, or just showing people that no matter who you are, no matter what your lifestyle it is possible for you to be living mystically, but I think it's important to clarify what we mean by that. And um, what I mean, my, my favorite description of what I mean by mysticism is, um, well, and as a Christian, I, I have to speak of God, 
but it would be very possible to uh, drop the word God from this description and still uh, have it hold if you were part of a tradition that was not theistic. Um, so that 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 description would be loving mysticism is loving experiential awareness of God. But I think it's I think it's very valid to say that the contemplative life or the mystical life and for me, contemplation and mysticism are equivalent. Um, another way of saying it, if you are not from a theistic tradition, is that the contemplative life or the mystical life is loving experiential awareness. Uh, whether you want to say of life or of the source or uh, of being, whatever, or say nothing at all, just awareness, loving experiential awareness. The two key words, I think, are experiential that this is an experience we're talking about, not ideas in the head. And I think it also uh, needs to be loving, although some traditions would prefer the word compassion, uh, compassionate uh, experience, which would also be very valid from my point of view. It's interesting when you talked about the community back in the 1960s and what drew you to joining, you said the vitality and, you know, often I think when people think about the life of people in a spiritual community, they think of people being quite quiet and, you know, speaking in hushed tones and walking slowly. And yet you're describing, even in your definition of mysticism, as a type of loving energy, something different. And I wonder if you can talk about that. That seems to go against people's, or some people's, initial ideas of the life of the mystic? Yes, I'm so glad you asked that, because for me, uh, vitality is the, um, is actually, I think, the greatest quality. Um, if, if you were to ask me what I think is the essence of Christianity or the essence of the gospel, I would uh, say it's uh, what's well, the passage. It's the only passage from Scripture that I know. The I can give you the verse and the number uh, by heart. Uh, that's you know Catholics normally don't do that very well, and I'm typical like that. But it's John ten ten where Jesus says, "I have come that you may have life." and have it to the full. Or some translations say, I've come that you may have life and have it abundantly. And I think that the biggest... Um, well, the, the saddest thing is uh, um, a, a Christian who isn't vital like that. I think, I, I think it was St. Francis de Sales who said, a sad saint is a sorry saint. Uh, or, uh, in other words, somebody who isn't very alive. And I think it, it's been an aberration of um, Christianity, of monasticism, of contemplative life, that it has been understood as a diminishment of vitality instead of an enhancement of it. And that's what attracted me to the particular brand of Christianity that I was drawn to. First of all, I was, I was raised like that. Um, I came from a very vibrant uh, family, uh, and I've always understood Christianity as full of vitality, 
learning it first from my family and then from the lives of the saints and the most influential people in my life were all very alive people. So I think we see a lot of caricatures of um, Christian life, mystical life, monastic life. We see a lot of stereotypes and uh, people have been forced into a certain stereotype or a certain mode of being and my whole work is about helping people be free enough to be themselves because that's really uh, that's really what it's all about. What have you found in your own prayer life, your own contemplative life, releases your vitality, enhances it? Ooh, um, uh, what releases vitality? That's a very good question. Um, I guess I have to confess, I, I, I feel vitality most of the time. It's not so much what releases it as what works against it. That has been more of my focus, is what, what are the obstacles against it. Uh, one of those obstacles would be um, workaholism. Uh, another would be something that uh, the writer Walker Percy called everydayness, which is that we get stuck in routines, and the the what's most seductive is the good routines because we can recognize a bad routine and say, or we can recognize a bad rut, and we can we're much more inclined to get out of a bad rut than a good rut. Um, I think living on the surface of life works against vitality. I think moving too fast. Um, I think living an artificial life that is not natural enough, that is not in tune enough with, with nature and the rhythms of nature, the rhythms of the seasons. Uh, probably for me, I would say connecting with the earth and the seasons of the earth, which in the Roman Catholic tradition are reflected in, in what we call the liturgical seasons of the year. There's a very big connection between what we do liturgically and what's going on uh, on the earth seasonally. I, I think that would be the way that I most profoundly connect uh, uh, with my own vitality, that would be what most awakens vitality in me. But as I said, I'm really, really interested in what works against our own vitality or against the natural um, eruption of the mystical life. And, you know, the first one you mentioned was workaholism, and you kind of said it and then kept moving, and I thought, oh, wait, she identified my biggest obstacle to vitality right there, the very first comment. So say a little bit more about that, yeah. Yes. Well, I first of all, I think that good, hard work is a very positive thing. I work extremely hard, and because I live... Uh, uh, out in a big rural area off the grid, uh, on the land, I work very hard physically. Um, we cut a lot of our own firewood. I live without running water. I've been spending years hauling water. Um, so I work hard. And also, just if you're committed to um, oh, changing life on the planet, if you have any care at all 
for other people and for what's going on in the world. You do you do work hard. I have a I may live as a hermit out in the middle of nowhere, but you'd just be amazed at the voluminous um correspondence I carry on. Um so it it isn't so much that hard work is the obstacle, it's more our attitude towards the work. It's becoming obsessed with it and not seeing it in perspective. And I know right now I, I'm particularly, this has been a particularly busy season for me, and I find that I'm so far behind because there have been so many demands on me. There's been a lot of travel. I've had an unusual number of visitors, um, people that I didn't want to say no to because they were coming to Crestone from far away. And so I have um, I have found myself, um, in some ways I want to say overextended, but as I put it to myself this morning, well, I'm stretched, but I think I'm holding the balance pretty well. And part of that is absolutely stopping by a certain time of the day and then just sitting and being and kind of emptying out of all of that uh, and um, leaving the rest for the next day. You know, uh, there's another great gospel teaching that has meant a lot to me, and that is um, do not worry about tomorrow. Tomorrow has enough um, concerns of its own. And um, just sort of letting be and stopping, you know, if it's... Uh, you know, I, I make sure I go for a walk uh, at the end of the day. I make sure I light candles. I make sure I just sit and uh, look out the window and listen to the birds or the thunder and watch um, clouds moving. Um, so I think it's, it's extremely important to uh, be willing to work hard and at the same time to be willing to stop and recognize all the other aspects of life that are so crucial to us. So another another huge um it relates to the workaholism because how do you how do you mitigate against that? Uh celebration and play, I think, are extremely important. They're aspects of just a good, decent human life. And I think they're just essential for a life of um prayer and contemplation. And that's what liturgy is all about. That's what Sabbath, keeping Sabbath is all about, um, which is another huge aspect of living the contemplative life, is being able to take Sabbath to celebrate the Sabbath. Now, you mentioned that in terms of what releases the natural vitality running through you, that spending time in nature is one of the keys. And you also spoke in the beginning about your love of the desert itself, that that was part of the reason you were interested in joining the community, the spiritual community that you joined so many years ago. And I'd love if you'd talk a little bit more about the desert. And I know that you are one of the co-founders of an organization called the Desert Foundation, and that there's this idea in Christianity of both an inner and outer desert. So I'm curious about that, especially the inner desert. Yes. Well, first of all, um, 
I spent so many years uh, in the desert of Arizona, and then when we had to leave Arizona because of encroaching land development, uh, we ended up moving here to Crestone, Colorado, and I know I was concerned that we were going to the mountains of Colorado. Well, the amazing thing about Crestone is that, uh, well, it's actually the largest where we live, which is in the San Luis Valley, it's actually the largest high um, uh, dry altitude um, valley in the world. And now I am I am sitting at this very moment uh, in my hogan, facing out my west window. I am looking way across the San Luis Valley to the other side of it, which is the San Juan Mountains. Those mountains are 50 miles away. They look like you could just walk there, but of course you can't. Well, I mean, you could, but it would take you quite a while. It looks like it wouldn't take you that long. And in between where I am and over there is this vast open space. And it took me many years to understand, you know how something can move you on a very profound, uh, symbolic level and or mythic level. You're moved to the depths of your being. You don't necessarily understand why. Well, it's taken me years. And uh, as you know, I have done a lot of um, dialogue with Buddhists over my lifetime. And I have been very influenced by my dialogues with Buddhism and Buddhists in particular, specifically Buddhist friends that I have. And I learned the, um, no, the Buddhist term shunyata, which um, I came to understand through my encounters with Buddhist friends as spaciousness. And so it's, it's actually through my encounter with Buddhism that I understood what it was about the desert that so attracted me. It's that it it represents for me this incredible, vast openness, spaciousness, and also a receptivity. And so I find as I look out at this outer landscape, there is a profound interior resonance for me whether I'm drinking in the outside and bringing it in or whether I'm recognizing in the outside what is already going on interiorly, I wouldn't even know. It's all mixed up. It's all one to me. The inner and the outer are one. I'm really interested in the relationship between landscape and soulscape. Um, and, and to me, it's just kind of an, it's just sort of a, a natural thing. That's why at this point in my life, my my whether you want to call it meditation or prayer is very much sitting looking out the window and drinking in this vastness that i see outside and then feeling uh it deepen um very profoundly on my inside now you said you're very interested in this relationship between the outer landscape and an inner soulscape. 
Are you interested in that as an idea, as in wherever anybody's living, if they're living in the jungle, if they're living by the ocean? I mean, tell me more what the interest is for you. Yes, and I I think um, I, I've actually spent a lot of time just lately uh, thinking about it and, and just uh, letting it kind of sink in. What is it that I mean by this? Um, I don't think that we are determined by landscape, but I think we are certainly influenced by landscape. Um, and I, I, I'm emphasizing that we're not determined by it because um, then that would condemn certain people who live in what they might find to be very difficult landscapes um, to... Um, they would not be able to experience what I'm experiencing. So, for for example, let me say this, too. I think what we're really talking about here is the depth of human freedom, um, which is possible anywhere. So even related to this, is uh, I have a, a, a very deep interest in um, prison literature, and what happens to people who are locked up, whether they are locked up in a physical prison or in some other kind of a prison where obvious freedom and mobility is, is severely limited, and what happens to them interiorly? Because then what happens is people have to go very, very deeply inside, and I think they they are capable of, don't always find, but are capable of finding um, profound human freedom uh, in other kinds of ways. I'm very affected by um, the poetry of someone by the name of Jimmy Santiago Baca, and he has a, an incredible poem called Who Understands Me But Me?, and it is about, he was locked up in prison from a very early age, and this whole poem is about all the freedoms that were taken away from him and the essential human freedom to be himself and find himself beautiful that he discovered as everything was taken away from him externally. So I wouldn't want to... Um, I mean, I happen to live in the desert. I prefer this landscape. I love this landscape. But I, um, what I'm talking about is um, definitely not limited to any particular landscape. But I think it's more challenging for people. Mm -hmm. And therefore, in, in many ways, it may be more rewarding. Yeah, I think that's a good point. Now, Tessa, in the beginning of your program that you created with Sounds True, Wild at Heart, you talked about how one of the great teachings that you have learned from the Christian mystics, and particularly from their lives, as well as from their teachings, but from the way they lived their lives, was what it means to balance polarities in our life the polarities of discipline and wildness or silence and activity. And I'm curious if you can talk some about this and why this theme is so important and how you see it in the lives of Christian mystics. 
I would say, oh, I guess I'm always saying this is the most important thing in my life. Um, <laughs> well, I think I've already said that. This is another one of the most important things. And I think that there is a tendency in us when we are younger. Uh, certainly it was true for me, and I don't mean to universalize it because it may not be true for everybody, but there is a, a human tendency to succumb to uh, the either-or mentality, where it's either this or that. So um, if silence is a big value, then uh, communication isn't. If we value the dark, then light isn't. Um, if we value work, then we don't value play or vice versa. And that's part of what I mean by why I, I so value the rhythms of the seasons, because when you look at an entire um, natural year, what are the rhythms of, a, of the seasons out in nature? And again, because I always relate that to the liturgical year in the Roman Catholic tradition, and I think the liturgical year is one of Catholicism's great, great strengths, then you see that there's this whole variation, there's this constant movement, and there's dynamism. So you have the bursting of life in spring, and you have life dying in winter, and both are absolutely valuable and essential. So it's neither one nor the other. It's both and, but there's a rhythm and a movement that we that we go through. And one of my favorite images for this is tightrope walking. That uh, you're you're not on either end of the tightrope. The I'm, I'm very fascinated by um, Philippe Petit that. Um, very famous French tightrope walker who's done astonishing things, including he walked between the World Trade Center buildings years and years ago. And I read what that experience was like for him, and he talks about how the real exhilaration and vitality comes out in the middle of that wire. So you're, he's, he's at neither end of the poles but he's balancing in the middle. And I used to talk about balance, and I don't anymore because balance seems static to me, and I think it's a constant balancing act, uh, which is why I prefer the word balancing to uh, balance. And then seeing this balancing of polarities in the lives of some of your favorite Christian mystics, who came before you. I'm curious how you see this in their lives. Yes, and that's what I see. So, uh, well, my favorite saint, uh, the one who has influenced me the most, and actually my na my, my namesake, uh, Teresa of Avila, um, so she's held up as this very... Um, high-level mystic, and yet she was one of the most active people that I know of in the roster of Christian saints. Um, when you're the founder of a community, as I know well, uh, because I was not only a part of this community, but I was the, the co-founder of it, um, the responsibilities that you carry are enormous. 
And so I see, especially the, the a balancing act in Teresa between action and contemplation. Actually, I think that is the essential balancing act for anyone who is at all interested um, in the spiritual path. The big challenge, I think, for all of us is the action-contemplation polarity. And it's a very individual thing. Some people are going to be uh, a little more active than contemplative, but never without the contemplative aspect. Some are going to be more contemplative than active, but never without the active aspect. And I think that's how each one of us has to find our way. So you can look at all these different um saints and mystics, and you find um, just varying degrees of whether they're active or contemplative. But both exist in all of them, and I think that is the heart of the struggle uh, for everyone. You know, everyone, I uh, when I give retreats and, and give workshops, the big question that people always have is, well, how do I find the time to meditate? How do I balance my family and my work and my contemplative practice? That's really the essential question, I think, for all of us. And I don't think that there's any one easy answer for it, for anybody. I think we're always trying to um, figure out the correct balancing for us as individuals. Well, there might not be one answer fits all or an easy answer, but what have you found in working with people helps the most with this balancing? Um, I think it is the, all those, um, you know, on, on my Wild at Heart program, I, uh, I know towards the end, the final two sessions, I begin by saying, I'm going to give you the best years of my life. And what I do is describe what I think are the most important ways to pull off the balancing. And it is what we talked about. It's it's all these things that we talked about earlier. You know, a correct, uh, I shouldn't say correct, correct is a bad word. That that implies a judgment. Um, 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 Congenial, I love the word congenial. Uh, A congenial attitude towards work. Uh, the incorporation of celebration and play, uh, the importance of uh, silence and solitude according to your way of life. Obviously, the kind of silence and solitude that I live out of isn't the same for uh, a young mother of three children. Um, The importance of slowing down, of living very deliberately, I think living deliberately is extremely important, and and that means with clear intention that many of us just get swept along, um, well, in the rat race, really, by all the demands in our lives, and we don't step back often enough, which I think is partly what Sabbath is all about, and look at how we're living and choose to live one way rather than another way. It also means not succumbing to uh, peer pressure and human approval. I think it means going against the grain. Um, I think it means 
um, standing out and being willing to be different, which is partly what I think is the message of um, the Desert Fathers and Mothers from the um, earliest centuries of Christianity. They they deliberately chose a countercultural stance, and I think that's a very important thing in our world today. We we really need to be countercultural. Um, and it takes a lot of courage to do that. Um, and that's why we also need to support one another on the path, because uh, it takes a lot of courage to be different. And to, go, and to swim against the current is, the, is one way of putting it. Um, Thomas Merton talks a lot about that, the swim against the current. Are there moments in your life, Tessa, that were moments where you really had to act courageously, that you could look back and say, this was a moment where I had to stand in a certain kind of courage. And I'd be curious to know what some of those moments might be. Oh, well, I would say, um, going back to the beginning of our conversation, I I think it took a lot of courage when I uh, joined the Spiritual Life Institute and helped create it, um, I helped build four different monastic retreat centers in four decades, uh, uh, w- one of which was in Canada and one in Ireland, so this was not easy. Uh, I think it took courage to be in the community and help create it. It took tremendous courage to leave it. Um, I think it takes tremendous courage to... um, I I would say one of the ways I feel courageous is uh, um, I really take a stand against um, excessive technology. Um, I love technology. I love that I that I can have my computer and with broadband I can be connected to the entire world from my Hogan. But at the same time, I'm not a slave to that computer. And I I go against the current because I'm not always available. I'm not always available um, by phone. I do not keep my cell phone on. Uh, I only turn it on a few times uh, during the day. Well, not even, some days I don't even turn it on at all. Uh, which gets me into trouble sometime. I have missed an important thing here or there, but but that's that's a that's a stand I'm taking against. Um, I, I, I watch friends of mine be uh, constantly available, and not necessarily available in high quality ways, but simply available to anybody anytime who just wants to chat. And I think it takes a lot of courage. Um, to, to take a stand for uh, the value of silence uh, in, an, in an overly communicating world. I think communication, I have watched it spoil a deeper kind of communion. Um, so those would be a few ways. What would you say to somebody who, listening to your answer, is thinking to themselves, I know there's this area in my life where I need to be more courageous. But, you know, I'm just not sure I'm really up to it right now. Like, it kind of sounds a little hard, and I, I don't know. Well, what I would say is, um, if, if a person, it's not, what I would say is, well, the fact that, that this is even tugging at you is some indication that there's something 
very deep going on in you and that some part of you knows that you need to make some kind of a change, but you don't have to do it all at once. You can do it incrementally. I love uh, something I read years ago from um, a married man who was talking about um, ways for husbands and wives to be better friends to each other and to enrich their marriage, and he was advocating solitude. Uh, But he he used this marvelous expression that I had never forgotten, and his expression was, uh, begin in brief, endurable chunks. So let's just say you have a similar attitude towards mine and you do feel enslaved by technology. So you don't just drop out, but you could um, turn your computer off and your cell phone off certain hours of the day. And then as you adjust to that, then you'd realize, wow, I can do this. And then you might increase the time. Um, So I think it has to do with... um, brief and durable um, episodes and you try it you try it on for size and um, if it is congenial to you and you find that it's life-giving and your vitality is increased um, well then I, I, I think then I don't think it becomes as difficult it becomes second nature, I think, after a while. What's, what may start out as a, a challenge and an act of courage, I think, just be, I think becomes a way of life. One thing I'm curious about is how our lives change when we start acting more courageously. And you mentioned that in leaving the monastic life several years ago, that that was something that took an extreme amount of courage for you. And, you know, not needing to know any of the details of it. I'm curious how it changed you to take that action, that courageous action. Oh, boy. Of course, I I mean, I'm really um, thinking more and more about this or meditating more and more about this and want to do even more writing about it. I would say it, um, again, it comes back to human freedom. It, uh, for me, it was, I, I, I feel as though I lost everything. I lost uh, my identity as Mother Tessa, whom I was known as then. I lost um, a way, a particular way of life. I lost my community. I lost a lot of friends as a result of this. And I went into, again, my Buddhist friends, I learned from my Buddhist friends a language that made me, that helped me, and it was an experience of um, complete groundlessness. And um, out of that, uh, I I would say what has arisen is a, a, a vast freedom that I didn't even know I didn't have before because I thought I was free. Um, but I I learned what you can live, what I can live without. It, it, I feel as though the worst, for me it was the worst possible thing that could ever have happened. And so now what that means is any challenge that comes, comes to me um, is not frightening 
because I feel like, well, my goodness, if I face the worst thing I could ever face, this is this is not a big deal. It was like I have to. I, w- I will say this: it was like an extremely messy divorce, and um, anything that happens to me now, whether it's uh, um, financial insecurity or um, uh, the possibility of health breaking down or um, anything that might might come my way, it's well, I, I, I get, I'll be able to deal with that because I face this other thing. So I think that's what happens to us when we when we can um, get through something out of courage. Uh, everything falls into perspective. I would also say compassion has been hugely increased in me uh, because I know that I would not want what I went through. I wouldn't want, on the one hand, I wouldn't want anybody to go through it. And on the the other hand, I know that because I went through it, I can be um, a witness and a sign of hope for people no matter what they're going through. And I would say this really changes how I... Uh, teach. Uh, um, for example, I just did a retreat recently. I gave a workshop up at Shambhala Mountain Center, and it was just wonderful to be back there. I hadn't been there in almost 30 years since one of my early Christian Buddhist dialogues, and I just love, I just love being in Buddhist settings. I have to confess. Um, and uh, I actually began. Uh, by telling my participants that um, when I left the community, it was such a difficult thing for me that I was actually diagnosed with post-traumatic stress disorder, from which I still suffer uh, from time to time, because you never really get over that. You just learn how to live with it. And one of the, at the end of my weekend, I asked everybody to say, well, what was the most important thing you learned this weekend? And one woman said, what I learned was uh, vulnerability and how possible it is to be vulnerable and carry on, and that you sh- that the fact that you started this weekend by being so vulnerable and telling us the story about your PTSD just changes everything for me. And um, I never would have done that before. I would have I would have opened out of um, uh, supposed strength. And instead, I I open with my vulnerability, which then makes it possible for everybody to um, respond vulnerably in uh, very open ways. So that's that would be a huge uh, difference uh, as a result of what I've been through, is being able to be um, publicly vulnerable, uh, which I think, what a different world it would be if we all could be uh, vulnerable with one another instead of having to play our roles and um, do our strongman acts and uh, one-up one another. Uh, It would be a very different world. You know, throughout our conversation, we've been talking some about the lives of great Christian mystics and how it relates to our conversation. And as you're talking about making a courageous move that loses one everything where you have to potentially lose uh, 
your friends and community and your status and title. What I was reflecting on as you were speaking is, is it seems to me that this is such an important theme in spiritual life and in the lives of mystics that there's often some kind of turning point like this. I'm curious what you think about that. Yes, I agree totally. Um, I think it's, uh, I guess I would want to speak most specifically about the, in the Christian tradition, I mean, what lies at the heart of it? The heart of it is what we call the Paschal mystery or the Passover mystery, which is the passage from death to life, the the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus. Now, we have this as a very vivid, um, not only image, but reality at the heart of our tradition. But it again, you, you come back to the landscape. That's what we see all around us as we live through a year. We see death, and then we see life burgeoning again. And I think that that is true of of all traditions i think i think there can be these um really dramatic instances such as i went through but i think it's a i think it's actually a regular rhythm and and that's really what impermanence is all about i think isn't it again coming back to another big buddhist teaching that that there's this constant um change um uh, constant movement, and again, that comes back to vitality. Life is about movement. Uh, there's nothing static about it. So I think it goes across all the different traditions. I mean, you can look at the various, if you wanted to, uh, I'm particularly because of the Desert Foundation interested in the Abrahamic traditions. I've already spoken about Christianity. If you look at Judaism, you look at the lives of the great um, prophets. Um, you even look, we'll even look at King David, who's one of my favorite um, figures in the Jewish Testament. I mean, David just blew it, lost everything, was hunted, haunted, hounded, um, and yet he's this great wisdom figure from the Jewish tradition. Um, and then in the Islamic tradition, I mean, Muhammad, uh, you know, is thrown out of um, his place of birth and has to make, again, a trek through the desert uh, before he emerges as the leader that he becomes. So um, we see it everywhere. And making difficult passages like this in our lives, you talk about prayer. You have a fabulous description of prayer, or definition, if you will, as a cry of the heart. I love that, Tessa, that phrase, prayer as a cry of the heart. And I'm curious how your prayer life took you through this difficult passage. How was it there, or how was it not there for you? Well, it has always been there. I know when some people go through a difficult passage, such as I made, uh, well, a common phrase would be, I lost my faith. That certainly did not happen to me. I felt um, Christ absolutely close to me through this whole thing. I guess I want to say one of my favorite descriptions of God is presence uh, with a capital P. And I have never, um, 
even though I experienced this groundlessness, uh, that was really on the human level. Um, I was groundless on the human level. I never felt, I never felt the loss of the presence. And I would say that the way my my prayer has changed, and it's very definitely changed, I use far fewer words, I use far fewer uh, images, and mostly I am simply sitting in the presence, aware of the presence. Um, and so it's very still now, even though what I went through was the most upheaving and agitated experience I've ever been through in my life. Um, uh, well, first of all, when you go through something like this and you suffer from post-traumatic stress disorder, you, you actually, you're in a state of shock. You're like a deer, it's like deer in the headlights. You're stunned into a kind of, um, and you're numbed. And so for a long time, it was simply that, but the interesting thing is externally it looks the same, but internally it isn't because it's now this deep, uh, peaceful uh, stillness that it is possible to go through enormous change, uh, enormous loss, to feel passionate grief, and then you reach this um, this utter stillness um, as a result of all of that, and that's what I'm, I'm, I'm I live out of, and, uh, and how I would describe my prayer. I'm simply sitting in that still uh, presence. It's interesting, Tessa, that throughout this conversation, you've woven in Buddhist insights and talked about how important it's been to you the Buddhist-Christian dialogue and conversations you've had with Buddhist friends. I'm curious, have you ever encountered an aspect of the Buddhist-Christian dialogue where you thought, God, we really just don't see eye to eye here. There's no way to make sense of these two things. I can't find any universal ground here. Or have you always been able to say, oh, if you go deep enough, we're meeting? Well, yes, that's such a good question, because I just think this... uh, Interspiritual dialogue. Now we used to call it interfaith, and now the the word more people use is interspiritual, which I think is so much better. I would say that um, I, I can only speak from my own experience. That my initial experience was, oh my gosh, we are so different. And then you you go deeper, and then there's the tendency to say, oh my goodness, we are so the same. And then I think you go even deeper. And you come back to the, oh, we are so different, and it is all right. And um, I know it's Baker Roshi who said once that um, really we're describing different territories. And um, I think that's true. And the territories are different, and so what? Um I I think what's interesting is that it is it's not so much sameness or differences it's can we communicate and find resonances and what my my experience has been if you come out of a contemplative tradition then you can communicate but if you are from a more 
superficial uh, and fundamentalist tradition, it's much more difficult to communicate. And I know um, another person who has influenced me a lot is... um, he just died recently. He was a professor at Fordham University by the name of Ewart Cousins. And his image was, well, he thinks, actually, that that the real uh, differences is, is that fundamental, contemplative, fundamentalist difference. That that it, it, it it's almost not relevant anymore to speak of Christianity and Buddhism and Sufism or whatever else you want to talk about. That it's really are is this a contemplative tradition or is it not a contemplative tradition? But his metaphor, which I think is fabulous, is that um, you're sitting around the campfire in the dark, and all of a sudden somebody comes from the north. And somebody comes from the south, and people come from all of these different directions. And you say, well, how did you get here? And what terrain did you cover? And how did you travel? And we all end up at the same campfire. But how we got there and what the journey was like is very, very different, whether you come from north, south, east, or west, whether you're Christian, Buddhist, um, Sufi, or... Um, Taoist, whatever, and I, I really resonate to this, that um, there are all these different paths, and we can connect with one another, we can celebrate how we are alike, we don't need to be threatened by how we're different. Now, I wouldn't have said that, you know, at the time of my first Christian Buddhist dialogue, that was quite terrifying to me, <laughs> but um, I've been at it long enough now and have... Um, grown in so many ways that um, I think it's all a very exciting thing and that the differences need not be threatening. They, they're simply differences. Um, and I think there are major differences. Very good, very clear. And that's and it, and it does not have to be it does not have to be alienating. Now, just to end our conversation, I'm going to ask a favor of you, if that's okay. We'll see how this goes, which is, I know you're a lay hermit now. You're no longer Mother Tessa, but I always love if it's possible in certain instances to end these conversations with a blessing for our listeners. Maybe some kind of blessing, if you would be willing to offer it for people in terms of courage in their own life, something like that. Is that okay with you, Tessa? Well, you know what? I think I would like to offer, um, because an, an, another big part of my work is um, uh, in my, the, the teaching is uh, like a comparison of the, the desert, desert spirituality and Celtic spirituality, which surprisingly are very different. Uh, I mean, they seem to be different, but are very, very similar. And the landscapes, in one sense, couldn't be more different because of the greenness of Celtic lands and the uh, dryness and even brownness of desert lands. But um, there's a very, very deep similarity in the spiritualities. And because the work of the Desert Foundation is so uh, focused on peace uh, between the Abrahamic traditions and uh, 
certainly the biggest need in our world is for peace among all traditions and peoples. I think I'd like to offer a a peace blessing um, from the um, Celtic tradition, which also focuses on on all of creation, which we've also been talking about the importance of um, living close to nature. Wonderful. Deep peace of the quiet earth to you. Deep peace of the running wave to you. Deep peace of the leaping fire to you. Deep peace of the prince of peace to you. I've been speaking with Tessa Bielecki. Wonderful conversation. She's created with Sounds True a six-session audio learning course called Wild at Heart, Radical Teachings of the Christian Mystics. Tessa, thank you so much for being with us and for all of the acts of courage you've taken. Thank you. Thank you so much, Tammy. I always enjoy talking to you. I find your questions always uh, provocative and very life-giving to me. It's been very rich for me. Thank you. SoundsTrue.com. Many voices, one journey. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.